The reading can be found on page 1122 of the Church Bibles. It's Acts chapter 24, beginning to read at verse 10. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My ancestors did not find me, my accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God that these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection on both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing, I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysus come, the commander comes, he said, I will hear your case, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, 
he left Paul in prison. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Rosemary. Do keep that passage open in front of you, if you can, there, in one of the, the church Bibles. Let's just pray for a moment, shall we? Lord, we do thank you for your word, that you are a God who has revealed yourself to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that you'd give us ears to hear what you would have us hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, If you remember the 1980s, and apologies, I know I'm showing my age, and uh, sometimes my illustrations come from the 80s or 90s, but if you remember the 1980s, you may remember quite a famous advert for the Guardian newspaper, where there was was a kind of a close-up shot of uh, a guy who was looking quite threatening, you know, really short kind of skinhead hair, bomber jacket or something, and he was running at high speed along a pavement. And uh, then the, 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 the uh, camera zoomed in on another man who looked very respectable, you know, I think he was wearing a suit, a bowler hat or something, holding a briefcase. And it became clear that the, the threatening young guy was running towards this respectable-looking older guy. And um, just as he reached him, the man sort of held up his br- briefcase to protect himself, and this young guy grabbed hold of it. And it was very obvious what was going on. It was a mugging. He was attacking him, and he was, uh, he was about to try and rob him. Except that then the camera panned out and showed the whole scene, and there was a whole load of bricks falling from some scaffolding above this second man. And what was actually happening was the young man was saving his life by grabbing him and pulling him to the side before the bricks landed on his head. And of course, the strap line said something like, if you want to get the whole picture, you need to read The Guardian which you may agree or disagree with, and we can discuss that one later on if you would like to. Um, Getting the right camera shot is really important, isn't it? Um, Some of you who may be sitting at home watching this at the moment, um, I hope you can can see me in the right proportions and and standing in the right place. Ben, who's on the desk at the back, and Jonah are are chuckling to themselves at this point, I should say. But um, if you you were at home watching one one of our online services from the early days, he says, when we kind of tried to learn to do this almost a couple of years ago, I'm very conscious that there were some slightly uncomfortable close-up shots of people's noses from time to time, weren't there? And some slightly distant ones um, where we perhaps couldn't be heard properly as we were learning a bit about how to do this uh, better along the way. Um, And I say all of that because there's something of this too when we come to read the Bible. Um, A sense that we need to keep both of these perspectives in mind. God has given us a big book, hasn't he? And it's great to be able to have it in front of us again um, with Bibles in the pews. Uh, It contains some sharp little anecdotes and some stories which take up maybe a few verses or a chapter. But it also um, contains some very long stories spread over many chapters and even whole books. Um, It contains 66 different books written by many different authors. And yet, with all these short and longer stories, there's also this sense that they fit into one big story, going right from the beginning to the end, uh, all centered on Jesus Christ. And so to read the Bible wisely, we need to make the effort to zoom in closely on the details. And I guess that's what we tend to do mostly, isn't it, week by week here in church? You know, we've got a manageable length of passage, um, up to a chapter usually, I guess it's what most of us probably do when we read the Bible at home in the morning or the evening. You know, tend to read a few verses or a chapter at a time. But sometimes we also need to try and step back and say, how does this fit into the big story of what God is doing here at this point in time? So we can see the wood for the trees. And so 
For a few minutes, I'd like us to try and do a bit of both of those things this morning, here with Acts 24. So it'd be really helpful to keep it open. Um, let's start by zooming out to get the, the wide-angle perspective, if you like, so we don't miss out on how Luke is showing us here how Jesus and his message is not contained or constrained by opposition, by trials, or by all the dangers or imprisonments that his people are facing. And then we'll zoom in a bit closer to this conversation between Paul and the Roman governor, Felix. So first of all, zooming out. Um, the big picture. Uh, the gospel on trial. Um, I think we might say that the big theme of these last few chapters of Acts, um, taken as a whole, is that Jesus will go on building his church despite all kinds of opposition and apparently bad things that are happening when his messengers are arrested or put on trial. Um, it fits in with the, the, the message of the whole of Acts, really, which is that the good news about Jesus is spreading from Jerusalem right out to the ends of the earth. But here in this, these closing chapters, there is particularly this sense of Jesus being at work, even in apparently pretty unpromising circumstances. Um, I think it's fair to say these are possibly the, the least popular chapters of Acts. Um, Acts is full of really great stories, isn't it? I don't know what you think of, first of all. Uh, what story comes to mind when you imagine Acts? Probably most of the ones we know best are sort of in the first 18, 19, 20 chapters, I would imagine. And one of the reasons for this might be that in these last eight or nine chapters, there is a sense of the same thing kind of happening over and over again. I don't know if you've noticed that in the last few weeks. Uh, basically, it's about Paul in trouble, isn't it? Paul being under arrest and making speeches to defend himself. And perhaps unsurprisingly, there's quite a lot of similar things in these speeches. So if you glance back to chapter 21 and 22, he's there in Jerusalem speaking to a whole crowd. Um, and then in the next chapter, he finds himself speaking to the Sanhedrin, the gathering of religious leaders. Today, we're in 24, and he's speaking to this governor, Felix. In the next chapter, he speaks to, to this guy, Portius, who is um, Portius Festus, Felix's successor. Sounds like he comes from the Adams family or something, doesn't he? Not quite. Uh, and then to King Agrippa, before finally being packed off to Rome to appear before Caesar himself. And repeatedly, you know, he talks about his previous life, he talks about what happened on the road to Damascus, and he talks about the fact that he's been obedient to the law, but his hope is in Jesus who rose from the dead, and that it's good news for everyone. Maybe the repetition is actually part of the point here. And it's not just that Luke slightly lost his way, and it's you know, become slightly dull because he seems to be saying the same things again and again. It's that it's drumming home something which is quite hard to believe and we very easily forget. He's saying to us again and again, look, none of these things can stop the good news of Jesus spreading. Do we believe that? Now, if the government were to suddenly shut down all the churches and arrest its leaders and begin to throw Christian believers in prison, what would be our reaction? Oh no, that's a disaster. Or perhaps closer to home, I'm thinking about the situations that we do find ourselves in. Now when we see you know, graphs showing us years of downward trends in church attendance in England, you know, let alone in the Church of England, are we tempted to wonder if God knows what he's doing? 
that's not Paul's reaction, is it, when bad things happen? He thinks, oh, look, I've been arrested. I've got an opportunity to speak about Jesus. And he dives in and makes the most of it. He, he says in places, you know, maybe I'll be freed, maybe I won't. Uh, but the good news here is that I've got the opportunity to point people to Jesus. Presumably that's why when he wrote one of his letters to the Ephesians, um, Paul could say this in chapter 6, I am in chains now, still preaching as God's ambassador. So pray, what would you expect him to ask his friends to pray for? He doesn't say pray that I will be released. He says, pray that I will keep on speaking boldly as I should. See, Paul knows Jesus' promise, doesn't he? That, that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And he believes it, whatever circumstances he finds himself in. And I think it's really important for us to remember that that, that is what Jesus has continued to do right down through the centuries. Um, I think I might have mentioned this book in, in the past. Um, it was published uh, three or four years ago. It's called The Martyr's Oath. And it's a book full of true stories, testimonies, of Christians in the 21st century who have been and are being persecuted for their faith, but who have carried on regardless, full of joy, because of the hope they have in Jesus. Now, let me just read you a, a few words from, from one example of this. This is uh, the story of Andrew, who comes from Eritrea. After coming to Christ in communist Eritrea, Andrew was imprisoned for his faith. After that, he ministered in another country where he was also imprisoned, and then in another where he was imprisoned again. I'm not mentioning where this was because Andrew, also not his real name, is still very much at work and at risk. Revealing his location or work could cost him his life. The truth is that he's okay with that. What he's not okay with is stopping the explosive growth of the church in the areas where he's working. So we're protecting his identity in order to protect the churches that are growing because of his ministry. Andrew is like a modern-day Apostle Paul, persecuted, deported, expatriated, imprisoned, falsely accused. He's seen it all, experienced it all. Yet he suffers, forgives, and preaches on. He's buoyant and energetic. His approach to sharing Jesus is to everyone everywhere. So wherever he goes, he believes he's been sent there as a witness. He realizes more than most people that life can be cut short at any time. So he speaks rapidly as he tells his stories of persecution, as if they're minor inconveniences. He races straight to the stories of the great salvations he has witnessed, from the judge who came to Christ before sentencing him, to the prisoners he met, to the first Muslim man he led to Christ in his new home. I'd love to read you more. And if you'd like to get a copy yourself, I highly recommend it. You can just take a photo photograph of the cover later on, perhaps, and take it away. Um, it's worth the time to read the things which Andrew and other believers from around the world have to say to us. But I just want to recognize this morning that the message of his testimony is very reminiscent of Paul's testimony in these chapters in Acts, isn't it? Um, through repeated trials and dangers and arrests and hardships whether it's the, the first century or the 21st century. There's this repeated sense that the authorities think they're putting Paul on trial, or indeed Andrew on trial, or indeed the gospel on trial. But all that these believers can see are opportunities to get out the good news of Jesus. And that's the big picture. And it's a good reminder for us 
about what's important and what we are here for. You know, in 21st century Britain, again, by God's grace, we don't face the same kind of threats, do we, that, that Christian believers in some parts of the world do face. Um, and, of course, we should be thankful for that. But not complacent. Um, and not lose the urgency that someone like Andrew, or indeed someone like Paul, has. That sense that time is short, and so we must make the most of all the opportunities that God gives us day by day. It's very easy, isn't it? Because we watch the news and, uh, and read stuff on social media to think that the biggest problems in the world are the pandemic, you know, or fuel prices, or Christmas being cancelled, as we've been told repeatedly, haven't we, recently? Now, there's not going to be enough turkey, there's not going to be enough crackers, not going to be enough PlayStations, we're not going to be able to have Christmas. Um, I wonder what Christians in Eritrea would make of that suggestion. Now, don't get me wrong, the pandemic's very serious, isn't it? And it's affected our lives and the lives of people we know and love. Um, the financial hardship that some are going through at the moment is real and worrying. I'm certainly not playing that down. And we could add many other things, couldn't we? You know, concerns about climate change um, and about terrorism. It's been in the news this week. And other scary things too. But at the same time, as Christians, we've got this reminder, haven't we, that when times get hard, as they will sometimes, Jesus still builds his church. And I think there's a real message for us and an encouragement for us here in Acts. Not just because we've got you know, church planting initiatives going on, but just because we all have opportunities, don't we, to point to Jesus, like Paul did, like Andrew does. That's the big picture. But just um, for a few minutes as we finish off, let's just zoom in closely to what happens between Paul and Felix here in Acts chapter 24. Uh, in the first few verses of the chapter, as uh, Steve said, Paul's been taken down to the coast, to Caesarea, where the Roman governor is, under guard to protect him, because some people are trying to bump Paul off. Uh, and the religious authorities, led by these guys, Ananias, different Ananias to the one earlier in Acts, and Tertullus, make their way there to make their case against Paul to the Roman governor, Felix. And basically, they, they accuse Paul of a whole bunch of things that are not true. Stirring up trouble, desecrating the temple, causing a riot, all those kind of things. What does Paul do? He gets up to speak. Basically, he does two things, doesn't he? First of all, he pleads not guilty to all of their charges. And then secondly, he pleads guilty to being a follower of Jesus. And to be able to do both of those things with a clear conscience is a real hallmark for Christian believers. First, there's the not guilty bit. Verse 11, look. Paul says to Felix, you can easily verify that I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And he explains that in more detail. But he's saying, in other words, look, the truth is on my side. Go and check it out for yourself. You're not going to find anything which will incriminate me. He says, verse 12, I was not found arguing at the temple or stirring anyone up anywhere in the city. Go and find out the facts. It's not true. And it's important that it's not true. And there are various times in the New Testament, you can probably remember, where Paul and some of the other apostles repeatedly emphasize how important it is for Christians to live quiet lives, is one of the phrases which is used. In other words, to not be those who cause trouble, um, who, who are lawbreakers or troublemakers, even when living under pretty hostile governments except where speaking about Jesus makes other people cross. So verse 14, he says, However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. 
The way was just the way that um, Christianity was referred to, um, which they call a sect. Paul says, I believe everything in accordance with the law and the prophets, and I have the same hope that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And as he says that, a resurrection of everyone, the righteous and the wicked, of course, Paul is giving a reminder to his accusers that he's not really the one on trial here. That one day everyone will be raised from the dead and will stand before the throne of judgment and it will be Jesus who is sitting there and that is the trial which we must prepare for. Why is Paul not scared before these people who could have him executed and probably will have him executed in due course in Rome? Why do Christians like Andrew refuse to be scared when they're thrown in prison again? Because they know that in the end it's Jesus who will judge and what matters is belonging to him. Felix and Ananias think that they're putting Paul on trial, putting the gospel on trial. Paul knows that one day all of them and all of us will face a real trial before the just judge and king who is Jesus. So he says, I've done nothing wrong. He says it again in verses 17 to 21. Unless it's in this one thing I shouted as I stood in the presence of the crowd. It's concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial here before you today. That's something being worth found guilty of in Paul's mind. He puts his hands up to it. And it's a bit like that famous old quote, isn't it? I don't even know who said it first. You know, if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And Paul, the answer is very much yes, isn't it? So Felix sends the accusers away. He remands Paul in custody. He's going to keep him there for quite a while. He does call him back again a few days later, brings his wife along this time to hear what Paul has to say. He's obviously interested, and Paul continues to make the most of the opportunity. Um, Verse 24 says, Felix sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in King Jesus. And Luke doesn't give us all the details of what Paul said, but verse 25, as he spoke about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. And it seems that from then on, Felix is more cautious. He's hoping he'll get a bribe of some sort, but he's not sure he wants to hear too much more about this, which is very sad, but also a reminder of one of the ways that people do sometimes respond to the gospel. Now, Paul gets to the heart of it with those three things in verse 25, doesn't he? He speaks about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. He's saying to Felix... Essentially, look, the lives that we live now, it'll be on that basis that we stand before God in the end. And especially how we respond to this invitation of Jesus has consequences. The book of Acts is full of brilliant stories about people saying yes to Jesus, full of hope and joy. But it also contains some of these slightly sad stories of people who hear the message, we're told Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now, you may leave When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. Well, we don't know if it became more convenient for Felix to say yes to Jesus later on. But at this point, at least, he can't see through to the joy and to the hope. And perhaps it's no surprise, because Jesus himself warned, didn't he, that the gospel would usually be much less convenient for those who enjoy plenty of wealth and power and things in this life, as Felix certainly did. So... As we zoom in on those words between Felix and Paul, we're reminded that following Jesus is about being counted righteous when he comes to judge. It's all about saying yes to his free offer to us. And when we see how the good news is being proclaimed, as we zoom out and see it again and again through these chapters, 
whatever the authorities may think they're doing, it's coming to a wider and wider audience. We're reminded and challenged to think about, well, what opportunities is God giving us today, this week, this year, even when the circumstances may not be quite as we would wish them to be? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for, for Paul and his witness and his confidence in the Lord Jesus, even when things were really hard for him. Thank you too of the, the challenge to us of being reminded that there are Christians like Andrew living out their faith at great cost in the world today. Lord, may we be those who remember them and pray for them and who are also ready to testify that our hope is in the resurrection of the dead because of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.